Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. plus on their feet. Nobody's left to beat the traffic tonight, I guarantee you. Mark gets the sign. The wind and the pitch. Here it is. Long fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes! Twenty-five lighters on my dresser, and yes, sir, you know I got to get paid. High fly ball, belted right center, and the Braves have landed. Twenty-five lighters on my dresser, and yes, sir, you know I got to get paid. Swing and drive, belted right, welcome to the show. Twenty-five lighters for my twenty-five folks. Now get ready. This is the Platinum Sombrero Podcast with your hosts, Dylan Short and Adam Doc Herbert. Hey everybody, welcome into another episode of the Platinum Sombrero, brought to you by Armchair Media and our friends at LinkedIn. The perfect hire can have an impact on your business for years to come, so when you need to find that next person to help grow your business, LinkedIn Jobs will match the right talent with your open role fast. LinkedIn has over 675 million members worldwide. They screen candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for, so you can make sure you hire the right person as fast as possible. Things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability. LinkedIn looks beyond the work skills and puts your job post in front of qualified candidates who match your business requirements perfectly. That's how LinkedIn makes sure your job post is seen by people you want to hire, people with the skills, qualifications, and other interests that will help your business grow. It's no wonder a person is hired every eight seconds with LinkedIn. And why companies rated LinkedIn Jobs the number one hiring platform for delivering quality hires. Find the right person for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash braves. Again, linkedin.com slash braves, B-R-A-V-E-S, to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions do apply. All right, everybody, we are very, very excited to bring you this episode this week. I know we told you we were going to go to once every other week, but when you get a chance to interview an established author, somebody who's been in the Brave system, and... One of the, I'd probably say one of the four horsemen of scouting, one of the the holy triumvirate or however you'd say the four people, uh, who pretty much the authorities whenever you're talking about prospects, top 100, scouting, all that stuff. We are very, very excited today to bring you Kylie McDaniel, former assist, uh, what was it, assistant director assistant of director baseball. baseball ops. Yes, <laughs> mouthful there, assistant director of baseball ops and cross checker, if I'm not mistaken. For the Atlanta Braves. Yep, that is me. Thank you. I have not been described as one of the four horsemen of anything, so I think I'll take it. It sounds like a compliment. 
I mean, I I couldn't think of a nicer way. Like four horsemen always kind of have kind of has like a bad connotation, but everybody knows who they are. I don't know what a, a holy quar, quorum for it would be, but uh, you know, we'll, we'll figure yeah. stuff out along the way. Yeah, it's a small group of us that get to do this for a full time job. So I, uh, I don't know. I, I I am very thankful that I'm able to do that and continue to be able to do that uh, and try to you know make the most of my opportunity here. So now that you've been declared on Dylan's Mount Rushmore, I'm going to go with Mount Rushmore instead of the the Four Horsemen. Now, published author. You have now added published author to your list of accolades with your newest book, Future Value. Very, very cool moment for you. Just released uh, yesterday, widespread. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's exciting. I was uh, mentioned to you guys off there that it's, it seems like the uh, publisher, who I guess sets the you know the date that it gets released, uh, they also can preempt that, and so they started sending it out a couple weeks ago. So we've already been getting you know tweets at us from people on Twitter that you know I recognize their names. They'll tweet at me every now and then, and you know ask questions and whatnot, and they'll be like, "Hey, read your book. It comes out in a week, but I just finished the whole thing, and you know love it." And I'm like, "Okay, that's I'm sure if you hated it, you wouldn't tell me. At least I hope you wouldn't tell me uh, or wouldn't tell anybody else." But they've been telling me they love it, so. Uh, yeah, Eric and I are pretty excited about how the reception's been so far. We've already gotten uh, messages from a couple scouts, and I know uh, Eric got one from a GM. I got one from an AGM just in the last week or so that they've already finished it. So uh, things seem to be going pretty well. Now, everybody knows it's a horrible time for, for sports in general and just the general populace of the entire world. Uh, but if this were a time to push out a book about how to scout and develop talent and the ins and outs of that, and if you were looking to actually kind of improve yourself before the season got underway kind of was the perfect time for this book to come out i'm i am sure you you've gotten some response i am certain there are far more scouts and agms and and just baseball ops people that are have been just waiting for this book to come out yeah it's kind of funny because the uh initially we were uh uh, approached by the publisher and they were based their their sort of question was uh post moneyball there's been a bunch of books about how you know the rays do it how the uh, Expos did it and you know how the Pirates did it and, and how the Astros did it and I was like oh yeah I didn't think of it that way but you're right there are a lot of like offshoots of how you know the team that I cover as a beat writer or a team that I find interesting um, have have done things in light of Moneyball um, or interesting stories or you know whatever um, and their question was well now that uh, Houston sort of led the way but now that scouts are sort of getting replaced the stuff that Moneyball was sort of about that like you know, scouts are as useful as people think they are. And when the book came out, scouts were scared that they were going to get replaced by, you know, analysts and stats and stuff. At that point, it was like on base percentage for college players, just like the kind of stats they were talking about. And so obviously that didn't happen because it turns out at amateur baseball and in the low minors, scouts are still the most, like their reports are the most predictive numbers that teams had. And so they actually staffed up because that was the way to get better information. Uh, Now, I, I don't think it is clear, but if, as a GM, you're inclined to want to cut scouts and replace them with analysts and look at numbers. You now have exit dealers going back to like, you know, age 15 for a lot of these kids. And, you know, if you're at the SEC or ACC, you've got three years of, you know, exit dealers and launch angles and spend rates and all this kind of stuff. So if you were inclined to want to have fewer scouts and outsource some of that decision making and, you know, ranking of players, picking of players, et cetera, et cetera, to analysts and uh, into numbers and algorithms and things like that in general, you now have the cover to do that. You can you can make that case where you could not make that case 15 years ago. And so their pitch was like, if we're trying to think of like who is at the intersection of all of these things happening and is already talking about these things and can talk, you know, somewhat intelligent intelligently about how an analyst would approach this and how a scout would approach this. 
um, the publisher was like, well, it's Keith Law and you guys. Uh, so do you guys want to do it? <laughs> Keith's already writing a different book, which is coming out next week. <laughs> so he was already spoken for. Uh, and we were like, yeah, that does. Like we had talked loosely about doing a book at some point. And uh, I think we sort of realized when that pitch came, we're like, yeah, if we were going to write it, it would be somewhere around now. And it would be something like this. And we can expand that to sort of include all the other different areas we're interested in. And so that's sort of the main thrust of the book. Uh, but we also include some other stuff that we think is like, you know, related to that as like sort of a encyclopedia of sorts of where baseball is, where it was recently, where we think it's going in the future and sort of how how we feel about it, how the industry and you know various other stakeholders feel about it. I got to ask, man, how's how's it feel to know that you've worked for just about every top baseball entity in the world now, now that you're an ESPN insider, formerly of Fangraphs, believe you were with Baseball America for a fair bit as well. Uh, you've been just about, you've, you've held just about every job you could have across all of the big networks. How, how does it feel to know that you've got basically every contact in the entire baseball scouting world? Yeah, and in addition to that, uh, the sort of thumbnail sketch of my job working, my job's working for four teams is the, you know, I got into baseball working for teams with the Yankees when I was in college. And that was right when like the UFC was popping and Moneyball had just come out. And that's sort of like all the rage. And my problem was everybody that was getting these full-time jobs was went to Harvard, had an advanced degree, played pro, had already scouted. Their dad knew somebody or their dad was somebody like there's a bunch of little things. And most guys in a front office have at least one of those, if not a couple of them. And I had none of them. I was just like some guy that wanted to help (laughs) at a time when there were a bunch of like random generic white dudes like me that wanted (laughs) to do this sort of thing. And so I would go work in like player development and they'd be like, "Okay, we have a full time job for you. What else do you want to do? And be like, all right, I guess I'll learn how to scout. And obviously that didn't just take one summer. But uh, and then I started, you know, went to the Dominican on my own dime. Uh, during the sort of Gary Sano, Miguel Sanchez class, or Miguel, um, sorry, Miguel Sano, Gary Sanchez class. Uh, And then I ended up going and working in analytics for the Pirates. And so like the short version is I ended up working in sort of every different department at some level. I'm obviously not an expert at all of these things, but very few people uh, are able to sort of bounce around and do all those things with teams and not have quit because I got pretty close to that. And then also have worked at all of the different outlets. I would have loved to have worked at just like one place and been like stable and have like slowly worked my way up and all that sort of thing. It'd be a lot cleaner. I'd have like a uh, not quite as long of a, you know, filling out for a mortgage application. I have to put down my <laughs> most recent addresses and I have like 17 of them. Um, you know, that sort of thing. But it's also like sort of define who I am in a way that I am sort of, uh, you know, jack of all trades and master of none. And you also like you were referring like the the Rolodex when you're trying to figure stuff out. Uh, I would have nowhere near, like I have a lot of friends that were like, you know, went to Princeton, got a full-time job in the front office when they were 23, and they're now 30 and have done basically that job with those people for seven years. And they're like, you know, maybe I'll be a gym one day, maybe I won't, who knows. But he's like, I know how to do one thing, and I know six people, and like, that's about it. And the one of, there was a guy with that sort of background that was telling me, like, this is painful now, like not having a full-time job, interning all over the place, like freelancing, all that kind of stuff. But he's like, in the end, if you hang around and do like what you're capable of doing, you'll be in a better spot because you know how to do a little bit of everything and you'll know everyone and I won't. And I was like, yeah, if I can, <laughs> if I can make it work, the, that that may happen. And we all just assumed that that would be an, in a front office somewhere. And it turned out that it is not. It turns out I'm on ESPN now and was at Fangraphs <laughs> for a while. Um, and I always I always thought that, that the, the front office stuff is where I would land and, you know, made sense and the stuff I was most interested in. Uh, and then after I did it, I think I realized that the sort of, um, you know, the lifestyle and the posture and all the different stuff where you still get to be in the industry and talk to all the same people and do all the same stuff. Uh, it's just like a better better uh, set of um, 
you know, sort of principles and lifestyle and hours and all that sort of stuff. And you can always go to a team. Like if, if you really want to, you're still running parallel to it. Um, so yeah, I guess that's my long winded way of saying, yes, I've, th- <laughs> I've done a little bit of everything and now I'm doing this. So do you still have the drive to, to return to the, to that front office life and maybe start working your way up to where your, your GM Kylie McDaniel, or this is your niche and you want to just keep rolling with this indefinitely. I, I had always said early on when I you know, was interning and, you know, go home for Thanksgiving and my whole family's like, what are you doing? Why don't you have a real job? Like what, what's happening? Uh, and they'd be like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, you know, like every, you know, young guy, like I want to be a GM. That, that makes sense. That's something I'd like to go for. And then the longer you're around, the longer you sort of see um, who gets those sort of jobs, what they have to do, what the sacrifices are, uh, that, you know, you'd make the big money on your front page of the newspaper. Does that actually add up as being a better job than like the anonymous number two that gets to have their hand in everything and control a bunch of stuff? That's still an open question. Um, but the reason I bring that up is they would ask me like, what's your dream job other than GM? Cause of course they're trying to steer me toward like, what makes a little more sense. And I was like, actually Keith Law's job at ESPN seems like a pretty good, like if I can't be a GM, that would probably be like a, a little more reasonable of a landing spot at some point in the future. Like, I don't know why he would ever leave that job. Uh, but if he did, that'd be something, you know, that would make sense. And so now that I'm here, I've, you know, talked to some friends w- with teams and stuff like that. And they asked the same question and I'm like, you know, maybe I would consider it. Um, but the sort of bar to clear to be a team job that like interests me more than this job, which I, I think is uh, de- debatably the, the best job in sort of baseball prospecting media. Um, it's a pretty high bar to clear. And I actually remember uh, when I was with Fangraphs, I was at a minor league game and ran into a friend that was working for a team and he was there to watch one specific player. And so after that player, his pitcher was out of the game, he had like four innings to kill. And he was sort of like, Hey, what would be your dream job with a team? We sort of outlined like, all right, not necessarily title, but like, these are the sorts of things I would want to do for a team. And he goes, okay, now how many teams, if all 30 teams offered you your dream job, how many teams did you actually accept it for? in terms of like, you know, the GM's job security, the city you'd work in, like, you know, the budget of the team, all that kind of stuff. And we kind of went through each team and spent like a couple minutes on each team. Like, do you want to work there? No, that one's easy. Yes. And we ended up settling on like five or six teams, which kind of surprised me. I was like, I didn't realize out of all 30 teams, like only five or six of them would I actually accept my dream job if offered. I would apparently turn it down for 24, 25 teams. And this was like a couple of years ago. Um, but that guy who like, you know, has his dream job of some sort. He was doing a job similar to the ones I was describing. He was like, no, I don't think you're being unreasonable. Like it would be crazy to just go take a job because it seems like a good job. And then your three bosses all get fired the next year. Like that's not a dream job anymore. Um, So he was like, yeah, I I think it is like pretty, uh, it's right to be exclusive in that way. So to answer your question, like, yeah, I'm interested in going back in the right role, but the right role is becoming like more and more narrow and sort of limited in terms of like how many spots there are like that. Well, seeing as you've spent a fair bit of time with the Braves at a time where basically scouting and prospects were about the only things we had going for us, I'm just going to assume, I don't even need you to say yes or no, that the Braves are one of those jobs. Uh, But speaking of those Atlanta Braves, when you were around with the team, basically all we had was what, Dansby, Ozzy, Cunha was still kind of a glimmer, but more just on on the radar of guys that had been in like uh, Dominican Summer League and and GCL and just barely keeping an eye on, on smaller Rome guys before he really blew up. How's it feel to, to see the Braves now with basically the entire roster minus like two or three starters that have been through the prospect pipeline within the realm of time that you were actually here? Yeah, it's one of those things that's uh, it's sort of tough because obviously you want to be uh, unbiased when you're in my role. Like even if you are aware of your biases, 
uh, and you know, like there's like certain people that I re- really respect in media, like uh, like Mina Kimes. Uh, we'll talk about how she likes the Seahawks, and then say positive and negative things about the Seahawks. And some people will look at that and say, like, well, I can't take her seriously because she's a fan. It's like, no, I think smart people and smart consumers of what those people say can separate these things. And obviously, I live in Atlanta, so it's like they're like kind of the local team. And I I grew up in the South. My family's from Alabama. I was in Florida growing up before we had teams there, and so they were, you know, because you know TBS, they were sort of the team. Um, but I think the like way that I have to work around that, um, but still have like some not rooting interest, but like, you know, it matters a little more to me how certain players pan out is like the players I had something to do with. So like uh, you mentioned, like Albies, you know, I, I joined uh, the Braves. I think he had his first year in low A and I'm, you know, there seven or eight times throughout the year to see him. I didn't even really talk to him because, you know, I'm not like high ranking enough that he needs to come like tell me like have his swings working. Um, but like, you know, the, him and Cunha and all those guys would kind of recognize my face. I'd go down to the Dominican complex and watch some of those guys work out. And, you know, the, you know, William Contreras and some of those other guys uh, were around at that point. And you're like, oh, I think that guy would be pretty good. And you see him in the GCL, you're like, okay, it's working. And you're like, I, you know, we're not trading this guy. So I don't really know what like the perception is. And then by the end of the year, you're like, oh, I think everyone else now thinks what I think. And that was how it was with Acuna. Like when I showed up, him and Victor Robles had just been in the Appy League. And I was looking at the exit velos because obviously those were not public in any way, the, the minor league exit velos. And they were sort of seen as like neck and neck. Robles is probably a little bit better for like the public entities. But the exit velos were, and this is actually something that's in the book, were completely different. It was like on average, Acuna was like already over 90 as a 17-year-old in rookie ball and was hitting balls like 110, 112. And, you know, uh, Robles was like barely hitting the ball like over you know, like 102 and like, you know, averaging like high 80s. Like it wasn't even close. And they were both the same age, the same level, the same position. Like they were basically apples to apples. And we're like, oh, this Acuna guy, like once he gets to low A and does what he's supposed to do, which he then obviously was hurt part of low A. So he didn't even break out until sort of the end of that year. And that team in Rome at the end of that season, which I want to say is 16 or 17, uh, that playoff run, I think the rotation was Tuki Toussaint, Mike Soroka, Max Freed. Uh, the lineup had uh, Acuna Weigel, and a couple other guys. Can't and it was... Uh, excuse me? So you can't be forgetting Patrick Weigel, friend of the program. Yeah, Weigel was there too. But it was one of those things where you go to the playoff game, a lot of times for minor league teams like that, even like playoff teams... Uh, like, I think they were playing Lakewood, and Lakewood was, like, a bunch of 24- and 25-year-olds. It was just sort of, like, you know, college guys and seniors and stuff like that. And they had a couple prospects, too. But it was, like, a lot of performers were older guys. And uh, our team was, like, a bunch of, like, 19-year-olds with huge tools. And it was, like, all of them were, like, hitting their stride at the same time. Um, and so now when those guys get to the big leagues and you're like, hey, I remember when Soroka, like, really – uh, shoved in the playoffs and then I sat next to him charting the next day and he explained to me like his thought process and I'm like okay like it's not like I necessarily had something to do in picking him or promoting him or teaching him how to do this or that um, there are a couple guys where that was the case where you know like Joey Wentz I was like the last look before we drafted him um, there are a couple little things like that um, but then when you see guys like Soroka and Albies and all that kind of stuff get to the big leagues you're like okay I was at least early on that train I have some familiarity with them I've had conversations with these guys before I was in the draft room when this happened, even though I wasn't making the decision in the same way that like uh, another thing I mentioned in the book and also uh, wrote a quick article on ESPN a couple weeks ago uh, about like meeting Trey Turner when he was at NC state. And he was basically like flattered that I told him he was going to be a first round pick next year. Cause like that sort of train hadn't left the station yet. Um, and so like, I had nothing to do with him becoming a good player. Uh, but in, in the book, in the story, it's sort of like his, him and his parents both like recognize me as the first like, uh, you know, public facing person that like said he was going to be an all-star, like he was going to be a high pick, like he was an elite player. 
and now he is. And so I had, you know, he wasn't on the Braves. In fact, he killed us. Um, but there's now, I think there's like a soft spot for like some of those players where you, you, you would, you don't root for it, but you enjoy it a little bit more when you feel like you were kind of there a little earlier than the average person was. You know, now that you were kind of on the other side of this and you were on the outside of the organization looking in, it's really interesting to see the way that you've got a lot of these guys that are lined up. You know, you've got Christian Pache and Drew Waters at the at the top of the system, like like just about anybody would. But one of the guys that I was really intrigued by the placement on was Braden Shoemake. He was a very, very divisive pick uh, in Braves country, which you know, may or may not really mean anything because the amount of people that were watching Texas A&M games last year is, and also watching Braves games is probably pretty limited. But you were one of the the few, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that had him as a top hundred guy, and he was also ranked fifth in the uh, in the Braves organization, which they're still ranked, if I'm not mistaken, they were uh, third overall in the most recent farm system rankings. So. Those are pretty strong accolades for somebody. I was just wondering if you could kind of let everybody know what it is you see about Braden Shoemake that, that stands out more than uh, than some of the other guys you had below him on the list. So I'm not going to say that I have been um, uniformly on Shoemake his entire career. I, he was one of those guys I didn't see a lot out of high school. Um, and when he was a freshman at Texas A&M, he was like early, like day one starter, performed, Team USA two summers, performed, Obviously, his draft uh, spring as a junior, he performed. Uh, but he was one of those guys that you can you can talk yourself out of as being like sort of uh, generic in a way because he's like a skinny six three six four. He doesn't look like a shortstop. He didn't even play shortstop really until um, his junior year. Uh, he looks more like a DJ LeMahieu, like lanky second baseman, maybe like a third baseman that's too skinny. He didn't have much power. It's like maybe 50 raw power, but he never shows it to you. It's probably more 40 or 45. Like it's sort of like a Colin Moran, Sean Burroughs. Like you could easily throw him in that bucket and not really be wrong. Um, and he's like, he'll give you like sort of 55, 60 uh, run underway. Won't necessarily give you that time to first base. So it's like a little deceptive. Um, and it's like a flat plane swing. Sometimes he'll bar out his arm. Uh, which you know means he'll have some trouble with you know pitches inside and just like all that stuff together, you're just like, okay, I'm not sure there's a plus tool here. He's just like a lanky guy that can hit, uh, and that's about it. And so if you're doing the whole like you know scouting the scout, uh, you would see a guy that says, all right, there's no plus tool. I'm not sure he's very dynamic. If he's an everyday guy, it's low end. There's a lot of different ways that could not work out. You can easily talk yourself out of it. Um, he is a guy that I think grows on you some because after you sort of watch him at shortstop, you're like, all right. He's long-limbed. Uh, he, he has, like, range into the hole. He's got enough arm. He kind of knows what he's doing. There's a little bit of, like, you know, Corey Seager, Reed Brignac, Carlos Correa. There's been, like, a long line, Alexander Bogarts, of sort of longer-limbed shortstops that everybody said can't stick it short, and then they all stuck because they're basically good athletes. They got coached well. They just figure it out. And this guy's a makeup guy that's always hit, baseball rat. And so then you're watching, you're like, okay, this is now a 6-4 shortstop that has hit for three years, and he can hit. And it's not perfect, like, swing-wise, but he makes a lot of contact and he has enough raw power that if you really want to adjust his swing, like you can squint and see above average hitter, average game power, above average runner, uh, at least average shortstop that can stick. And then the results early in his pro career after getting drafted, if you, you know, if you take what I said first, that like, he seems like he's unexciting. If you take what I said second, uh, he then seems exciting. So you can see why people would say this guy's not ranked in the right place. I had people uh, that, sort of follow the Braves closely or scouts for other teams that live in Atlanta. And they were like, why are they taking this guy? Like, you know, scouts that know what they're talking about did not like that pick. And I was sort of on the fence at that at draft time. I was still sort of of two minds about him. 
And then he gets the throw ball. The shortstop uh, metrics of him defensively at shortstop, which are obviously proprietary to the teams, but multiple teams, including the Braves, were like, this guy was like almost off the charts for like that, you know, whatever it was, 50, 60 games in pro ball. It was like plus 10 runs in 60 games. And he's like, this, you know, guys I'm talking to are like the scouts, you know, our reports that saw him, especially the pro guys that didn't see him as an amateur. They're like, our guys are saying he looks above average there, too. They have no history to know that he only played, you know, second base mostly until then. Um and then they're saying, like, he could, you know, basically not unlock his power and be a six hitter with four power average everyday bat and then at an important position. And he's an above average runner. Um, so, you know, when you then put it together like that, you're like, OK, if this guy's a high probability, moves quickly, got the double A at the end of his first year. Like, he might be better than Dansby Swanson like a year from now, which is quite a leap from this guy shouldn't go in the first round and a bunch of scouts wondering why he got drafted there. So I think his, like, pro debut kind of threw into relief uh, that the sort of rosier projection, the more optimistic uh, profile, uh, I think is going to be the one that kind of wins the day rather than the, I'm not sure this guy has a plus tool and he's a little too thin. He doesn't have too much power. I'm not sure he's a shortstop. That could all end up being true. Like maybe he ends up being exactly that guy. Um, but I think that's a good example of uh, what you hear a lot of in scouting, which is don't talk about what, what a guy can't do. Talk about what he can do. And if he can do a bunch of stuff and he has really good makeup, like just assume that he'll figure out how to make the most of those things that he's not the best at right now. I will say that I, uh, I've been throwing Ben Zobrist on Braden Shoemaker since uh, pretty much since we drafted him. I was one of those who was a little bit perplexed with the pick, particularly since Logan Davidson was still on the board. But I, I can't argue with the results coming out of college. But speaking of some other guys who look like steals or, or helium picks, we've got one now that at Fangraphs, I don't know how much you were involved in this placement, but uh, Tucker Davidson. I, have, I, I can't remember the last time I've been bowled over by Prospect Progress like Tucker's, um, I've had him ranked as high as six on mine. Uh, I think that's I think that's right where Fangrass has him as well, if I'm not mistaken. What have you seen from Tucker Davidson and and just from your scouting eyes? What is it that he did that really allowed him to explode? Uh, so I was at Fangrass when we did that ranking. Um, so yeah, the I, I was I was involved in that, and then I guess I did a refined version of that when I did my ESPN one. Um, he was interesting. He was a a later round gamble. JC kid that was uh, we'll say the body composition wasn't fantastic. I'm not going to call him fat because he wasn't fat. He's a very good athlete. Um, but it was like, all right, if he lost a few pounds, maybe there's something else here. And it was sort of average stuff at junior college in Texas. Uh, like, you know, we'll kind of see what happens. Like if you get 10 of these guys, one of them will really pop. Um, and then his first full season, uh, I believe it was in low a uh, lost a few pounds, got a couple extra ticks of velo, the breaking balls both got better and he was athletic enough that he was able to sort of, you know, still throw strikes, repeat his delivery. He didn't sort of do the whole, you know, full driveline uh, thing, which I guess a lot of scouts would say the driveline thing, which is like head whack out of control, hit 96, but it doesn't matter. He was like aggressive hitting 96, sitting low 90s, getting in the you know, mid 90s, above average, two above average breaking balls. Changeup had always been about average. Command was right about there. Um, and then his next season, it like regressed a little bit. I think the stuff backed up a bit couple of the things that he had sort of improved upon regressed some and then last year he got back to where he was and then some there's even a little more velo he was like sitting mid 90s the breaking balls were flashing plus now because a lot of times the breaking ball quality will just sort of map directly to um to velocity because you know in additional arm speed if you keep everything consistent you're going to get more bite on your breaking ball um and so you could then say it was a plus fastball uh he's been up to 100 in bullpens if you've sort of seen it on twitter and up to 98 99 in games uh, the slider is a little better than the curveball, but both will flash plus. The changeup and the command are still right around average. 
and so it's one of those things where if that guy was exactly that at Arkansas for three years and goes 10th overall, and then sort of is that for three more years with all that pedigree and momentum, everyone would sort of think of him the same way and put him, you know, 50th in a top 100. But because it's like a little unusual frame wise, the path has been a little bit different. There was no pedigree out of school. Um, it's a little bit of wait and see. It's also the velocity is like a little bit new and there's like a little bit more effort now um, to where you kind of wonder like, all right, is this 200 innings, like going 120 pitches uh, and like throwing strikes the whole time? Or is this now like more stuff, but now it's like a little more multi-inning reliever, you know, opener, you know, three, four inning guy, two times through the order as opposed to three. So there's like still a little bit unknown and the track record. And like I said, the history is still like a little uneven, uh, but if he does this for another full season, he's like easily like a like a mid top 100 guy, which I think, you know, at, not at many points in his career did you think that was where this was going to go. But that's where you take gambles on this guy. And I think that may also be um, one of the that's the type of player that may be the casualty of the uh, shortened draft now that, you know, teams can't take one hundred twenty five thousand dollar bets on all of those late round guys. Those guys are probably going to go to college, a bunch of them wash out and then like one or two of them signed for two million dollars in the first round. Well, speaking of more late-round steals, 2019, the Braves employed kind of a new strategy with Dana Brown and Alex Anthopoulos kind of taking more of a lead role in the scouting section. Uh, just looking at the high school guys, I know my partner, Doc, is a ginormous fan of Michael Harris. I'm a huge Tyler Owens guy, and we are both gigantic Mackay Backstrom guys. What, uh, what could you tell us about those three, and which of those three looks to be like the real steal? Uh, I, I think Harris uh, is the one to sort of bet on. I think he's the best example of uh, both being undervalued, having sort of everyday tools and popping early with like performance early in his career. Um, I, he, he was one of those guys that I was on. He kind of popped in the fall before his draft year uh, at the sort of Braves Yankees event at uh, Central Park over the fall. Uh, and he was a guy that I think a lot of people had heard of that hadn't really seen that's like into the low 90s starter look from the left side and then can hit and have some power, pretty good athlete, seemed like a really good college guy because he wasn't quite good enough either way to go in the top five rounds and there wasn't a track record. And obviously those guys are great in college because they can go both ways and then teams can wait three years and see like sort of uh, how the cream rises, like with, you know, whether hitter or pitcher is like a better option long-term. And then during the spring, I was hurt. I heard that like his coach was sort of mishandling some that he would like go play center field and then come in and pitch. And sometimes he would pitch and go play center field and, uh, and, you know, getting used like, you know, twice in one week and like all kinds of weird stuff. And so some teams were on him as a pitcher thinking like, all right, there's more velo here. If he just stops hitting, focuses on pitching and gets used in like a conventional way. And so he might be 90, 93 with 55s across the board and be a really good pitcher. And so I kind of filed him away at that point thinking like, all right, he'll be somebody's bet third to fifth round, maybe overpay him in the 12th round, something like that. Uh, and I heard some whispers before the draft that like he was lighting up uh, teams pre-draft workouts. And I heard after the draft that. Um, he was hitting balls like way out in SunTrust before uh, the draft. And they were then convinced like, all right, we were thinking this guy might be a third to fifth round pick as like a pitcher, maybe a hitter. And like, we got some like, you know, late momentum as a hitter. And then like he's showing his power. We haven't seen before. We already know he's a good athlete. He hasn't like completely focused either way. And I think that sort of pre-draft workout gave them the conviction to uh, take a shot as a hitter. And then similar as with Shoemake, like the, the hits the ground running performs. And when you perform, everything looks a little bit better. And so you can just look on the rosy side and be like, all right, this guy might be like average to above at all five tools he's performing. And the explanation is basically he was late on the scene and he was a pitcher and he was maybe a little mishandled in both. Um, so like, there's a good explanation for why he's sort of late on the scene. And this is another guy that like Davidson, like if he does exactly what he did last year and the tools look the same way, 
it could be a top 100 guy. Like there's guys at the tail end of the top 100 or guys in conversation there that if they have a full year at low A and have these sorts of tools and that kind of performance, uh, that's like in that same sort of general area. I know we got to go, but just want to replug that book one more time. Uh, future value. Now, if I had another 30 minutes to grill you, there are quite a few things I'd be trying to mention here about actual future value that can kind of confuse. But I'm assuming that you guys go over all of this in your book. And if there's anybody out there like me who uh, can struggle a little bit figuring out what, what future value is and why 145 future value is worth more than another 45, I'm assuming this book will answer pretty much any question you could possibly come up with. Yeah, I can give you like a quick like overview of the things we cover. So like I've been describing it as like, you know, 90% of it can be broken into three sections, which is uh, the draft in July 2. So we spend two chapters on July 2 just because we been writing like 30,000 words on it. So we split it into two and one chapter on the draft. So those three chapters is one section where it is strategy, it's rules, it's examples, it's uh, scouts explaining like how I drafted. Like one of the ones that's been picked up a lot on social media was JT Real Muto. Uh, we had Stan Meek, who ran the draft for the Marlins for a while, talking about Yelich, Stanton, Jose Fernandez. A couple people told me they teared up reading the Jose Fernandez part. There's a little, couple spots like that. Uh, and Rio Muto. Um, and we have the same thing internationally, like the guys that have signed Jason Dominguez, Wander Franco, Vlad Sr., Vlad Jr. Like, we've got stories about all these guys, and almost none of these have been public, um, which was, we kind of realized. Like, there wasn't a narrative element to the book, but all the scouts that have been doing this for 20, 30 years, they all know each other. They used to work with each other. They were rivals. All their stories include each other. And a lot of these guys don't get called up by, you know, area sca- or um, beat writers or national writers to talk about how did you sign this guy because they're writing about what's happening tomorrow. Like, you know, all that kind of thing. So we really like that. So it's probably my favorite section of the book is just breaking down like how those amateur markets come together. Um, the second section is basically, do you want to scout? Do you want to learn how to scout? Do you want to be a scout or do you just want to understand the game better? It's three chapters, like almost 100 pages, just like explaining how to do it. And pretty soon we'll have a page coming out on Fangraphs um, that will have videos that uh, go along with these chapters specifically. I mean, the whole book, but mostly those chapters where if we're talking about bat control and we explain verbally what it is, you still probably want to see it. And so we'll have a couple of videos to say this is what it looks like. Um, so if you want to be a scout or you just want to be like a little smarter about stuff, um, that's that's the section for you. And then the third section is basically talking about statistics all the way back to the branch Ricky stuff, the money ball stuff, um, and then explaining in great detail all the radar based technologies, the bat sensors, all that kind of thing. And then getting into um, a chapter called Running the Modern Team, which is basically if teams are trying to uh, replace scouts with stats, what stats, like what are the actual stats they're using? Like if a, if a team is uh, telling their scout, your scouting report is wrong, you said this guy's a 60 curveball, our metrics is it's a 65 or a 70. How are they coming to that? What is that metric seeing that the scout is not seeing and vice versa? Where do we come down on, uh, on like how that works? So that's like the main part of it. And then the other like little side parts, uh, like individual chapters, we have one about if you're a player and you want to get recruited, you want to go to D1 college or, you know, any sort of college, really, how do you get better? How do you get coaches attention? How should you approach this? If you want to hire an agent, how do you do that? Um, so we have one chapter about that. We have another one. If you want to work in baseball, like we get into this some in the scouting chapters about if you want to be a scout, these are things to do to get better. We have a whole chapter about if you want to be a scout, if you want to be a coach, if you want to work in a front office, if you want to get an internship, if you have a neighbor that wants to do it or a neighbor that wants to be a D1 player, we explain all of that stuff. Uh, and then there's one chapter at the very beginning where uh, we just sort of go through like all the rules and stuff, which is like kind of dry. I think people listening to this probably know most of these, uh, but a lot of them will give you examples. Um, like there's actually one example about how the Braves signed Jacob Lingerin that has not been public that I was involved in, but I didn't, uh, that I didn't, um, 
right in the other forum, uh, but I realized there's a perfect way to explain like how non-tenders and stuff like that works. And so I explained kind of how that all went down. Um, yeah, so I think, and then, oh, and then inside that whole like how to scout, there's also a whole chapter about what feature value is, how it works, how we land on it, how it scales to war, um, and all that kind of stuff along with all the different, you know, how to, how to scout raw power and how that scale works. There's all kinds of charts and graphs and things in there. Uh, and one of the things that came up in our, uh, the last interview Eric and I did is in the last chapter where we talk about how teams are, you know, sort of making decisions and how they can sort of cut scouts out of the um, decision-making process if they want to, we go through team by team and say, you know, hey, the pirates are very progressive at this thing, but they're a little more traditional at this thing. Um, just so if you're a fan of the pirates and there wasn't a long part describing what's going on with the pirates, we're like, all right, we're going to give each team a little section about what they're doing. And at the front of that section, we have a matrix, which the, um, the x-axis working from left to right is uh, traditional to progressive in terms of, you know, essentially stats versus scouting, uh, broadly speaking. And then the y-axis, north to south, would be successful to non-successful. Um, and so we put teams in one of these four quadrants. Uh, and I think that's something that we'll probably, uh, Eric and I will probably collaborate on every six or 12 months and sort of update where teams are on this. Because obviously, you know, like Boston, Baltimore, new GMs, we don't know exactly where they're going to land. Um, but we use that as like a picture to sort of describe where teams are and based uh, on like what their approach is and is their approach working. And it turns out um, there are some, a lot of us to like notice about this that we think are pretty interesting. And so I think we've lucked into like a nice little um, visual way for uh, more casual fans or fans of one team to kind of get an idea of uh, where their team is on the, on the spectrum of all these different ways of doing stuff that we spent, you know, 380 something pages describing. Very cool, man. Well, I can pretty much guarantee you that I'm going to read it. So uh, you might get a, uh, get a copy delivered to your office that you will hopefully sign and uh, and return to me. But we know you got to get out of here, man. Thank you so much for taking the time. He is Kylie McDaniel with ESPN, author of Future Value. And uh, Kylie, if you've got some time uh, coming up pretty soon, we'd love to get you back on to talk a little bit more about the draft. We didn't even, didn't even get a chance to really touch on that too much this year. So if you've got some time, we'd love to have you back. Yep, and we'll be uh, we'll be doing all kinds of stuff with the draft, which I don't want to commit to. I know what our plans were before all this stuff. I don't know what they're going to be after, but I think you guys will like it. Can't wait. Good. The <laughs> other thing there, and uh, thank you one more time for me, and uh, you may not have known this when you said it, but when you were talking about Joey Wentz, you are speaking to the number one Joey Wentz fan still in Atlanta. So uh, <laughs> just knowing you played a part of Joey Wentz becoming an Atlanta Brave means you've now jumped to the very tip top of my list. So thank you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I met him, I told him that story, and he goes, "Thanks, man." I was like, "Yeah, no problem." I, I was just going to a game. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that being said, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Make sure you're following Kylie on Twitter. Make sure you're buying the book Future Value. We're gonna take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a second, right here on the Platinum Sombrero. This week's episode of the Platinum Sombrero podcast is brought to you by the Happy Beginnings Massage Parlor. Let's face it, life is hard, and sometimes you just don't have any time to waste. So here at Happy Beginnings, you can come right in and get down to business. We'll get you in and out lickety split. If life's got you by the balls, we can too. We can help you release your stress and then some. And if you're feeling overextended, our service can't be beat. Afraid to ask? Don't be. Don't beat around the bush. That's our job. Stop in today for a good old-fashioned rubdown. If you need it, we'll need it. We've even been bestowed with the highest possible honor, the Robert Kraft Seal of Approval. Happy beginnings, because who's got time to wait for a happy ending? Patent pending.
Welcome back to the Platinum Sombrero, ladies and gentlemen. Doc Herbert here, just reminding you that the Platinum Sombrero is brought to you by Simply Safe. You probably spent a lot of money on your house, and whether or not that was a wise investment, it is a good idea to make sure that it's secure. Traditional lock and key mechanisms are so 1981. It's time to bring your house into the 21st century with Simply Safe. Simply Safe is the closest thing to a chastity belt for your home, protecting you the outside so you can protect what's inside. Cameras, doorbells, glass break sensors, entry sensors. The entire world's on lockdown right now, and cops are probably bored. So you'll have them at your disposal if some shenanigans start happening. You can use the backup just in case some foolish interloper tries to get into your business and tries to take your stuff. The best thing about Simply Safe is that it's only 50 cents a day. Or is the best thing about Simply Safe that the best part is you can install it yourself in under an hour. Probably even do it in 30 minutes. There's no need to wait, no need for a five-day waiting period. Get it now, install it now. Don't wait for a technician to come overcharge you for something you can do yourself. You're a big boy, you can handle it. Go to simplysafe.com team for your free 60-day risk-free trial. Got nothing to lose and you know you've got the time. That's simplysafe.com team. I am really saying Simply Safe a lot, aren't I? Of course I am. And when penetration is the name of the game, keep the intruders out with Simply Safe. That's Simply Safe with an I. Simply Secure. AF. So Dylan, last week we talked a little bit about a proposal that had just leaked that MLB was kind of kicking around about playing the entire season in Arizona or what will be left of the season by the time every, everybody gets over this COVID-19 thing. I feel ridiculous saying it again and again and again. But a different proposal has come out since last week and both of them were broken by Bob Nightingale or Boob Nightingale of USA Today, as it were. And this one is really kind of an interesting proposal. For anybody who hasn't seen, there is now a proposal that would essentially make the 2020 baseball season, or what's left of it, uh, an elongated spring training. With You would have 15 teams playing in a Cactus League out in Arizona, and 15 teams playing in a Grapefruit League in Florida. And the more I think about it, there are some obvious hurdles to clear, and it wouldn't be perfect, but I think I kind of love this proposal. What do you think? So, if you guys listened to me when I did Locked On, uh, I don't know if I, I think I did this, I either did it on Friday or I did it when I did the Emily Walden interview on Monday. Uh, I went I went a complete 180 in record time on this. I started out hating it, probably because it was attached to Boob Nightingale's name, Um but the more I actually thought about it, the more I love the idea. It's going to be a different season anyway. Like No one's going to look back on this season in 2055 and say 2020 was a for real season. It's always going to have an asterisk, just like the strike seasons. But go, go a little bit crazy. If, if it's going to be something different, let's let it be different. Different divisions. We, we know it's played under extenuating circumstances, less games, different divisions. I'm all for it. I think that the idea of... Of getting of, of baseball allowing itself, which being a very calm, flat, two-dimensional, uh, vanilla sport in a lot of ways. Not not in all ways, certainly, but in a lot of ways, baseball is, is a very calm, introspective sport. It's it's like chess, kind of. Like you said, you know there, there's going to be some crazy stuff that winds up happening, and so now taking this and saying we are going full weird. This year, and we're just gonna gonna completely realign the Braves. If if this proposal goes as as proposed, then the Braves would be in the Grapefruit League South with the Boston Red Sox, Minnesota Twins. Because you know when you think of the South, you should certainly think of the Minnesota Twins, uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, and the Baltimore Orioles. So that's all American League teams 
three of three of them being from the AL East, one being from the AL Central. And so th this is a whole new set of rivalries. We've spent years honing our hate for the Phillies and the Mets. And now this is kind of cool because it's like you can still play all of these games and you can see these guys that you never play. Josh Donaldson would be in the Braves division. And that by itself would be worth the price of admission. You get to see a Rays team that is that is really, really exciting and keeps finding ways to win. You get to... to play against all of these different pitchers that you never see and see all of these batters that you never see. I I love it. Not not just from the Braves perspective, but from a league-wide perspective. I think this is really cool. Yeah, I really do. I really do enjoy it. And honestly, the division would be a little bit easier than it would have been what we were predicting the NL East to be anyway. Now, granted, the Twins and the Rays are certainly fantastic teams. And those would be difficult. But the Red Sox are going to suck this year. The Orioles obviously are going to suck, so that's that's two easy teams to kind of for the rest of the other three to beat up on for a little bit. And I I think it would be cool. You'd have a universal DH, so people could see that the DH isn't going to ruin baseball. Uh, pretty nice to be able to work in Austin Riley and Johan Camargo, and not have to worry about sending one down to AAA. That'd be pretty awesome. Uh, I I'm I'm a big fan of that. I I like that you can split it up to where there's two leagues instead of everybody just playing in one giant league. There's some other proposals that they've talked about maybe uh, doing so big as having a 30-team tournament at the end of the year. I don't know how I feel about that, but this year I might be okay with it unless you're talking about it could give them ideas later on. But for, for this 2020 season, getting it established to where it, it looks, feels, and we all already know is a totally separate entity, I'm totally fine with it. I'm not sure... I'm not sure how feasible it is. We'll have to wait and see uh, what what the guidelines come out to be for you know for playing ball in Arizona and in Florida. But I gotta say, I, I like the thought process. You're gonna talk. I'm, I would assume there's probably gonna be more than 26 men on the roster. But the other cool idea from this is that baseball could be played all day. So you could have your first game start at 11 a.m. and basically go through all night. That would be really cool. That also appeals to both coasts. That was one thing that I was really nervous about for the full-on Arizona proposal. Is I'm sure that there would be ways to, for them to, to like you're like you're saying, have have the games in prime time for for everyone in the country. But if we're out on the East Coast and there's supposed to be an 11 a.m. East Coast game, well, you know, in Arizona you got to start at eight nine nine in the morning to to have something like that happen, and that's that's tricky. Even when you're looking at day games in the scope of a season where you start 80% of your games at 7.10 or 7.20 or, or whatever, and then just trying to recalibrate and do an afternoon game, that's one thing. But when you're playing legit in the morning, like the early, early morning, that's a that's an interesting thing to clear right there. So if you've got, you're addressing the East and Central time zones with the Grapefruit League and the Mountain and West Coast time zones with the... Uh, or excuse me, Pacific, a uh, West Coast is certainly not a time zone. But but what this also does is it normalizes park effect, kind of. We talk about Colorado being a really easy place to hit, and Philadelphia, and New York, and Cincinnati. And the other side of that, you've got Detroit, and San Francisco, and San Diego, and these really, really big parks. Well, that becomes a lot more neutral if everybody's playing in in much smaller or much more streamlined parks, I guess I guess we should say. 
most most of them would be bigger. Most of them would be bigger parks because spring training parks actually tend to be a little bit bigger than the regular season parks. Or I don't know if it's bigger, but it's generally harder to hit homers in spring training than it is in the regular season. I, I wonder if some of that is related to conditioning versus the actual size of the park. But anyway, you cut it. You're absolutely right. That is that is absolutely true. So you don't have the advantage of being a Nolan Arenado hitting in Colorado, or you don't have the disadvantage of being, I don't know, Jonathan Scope playing in Detroit. It was really hard for me to come up with one person who was going to do really, really well for the Tigers this year. But like you said, if you're going to get weird, get all of the way weird. One thing that I want to bring up to you is if you do it this way, and you can't have interleague play because there's 15 teams in the American League and 15 teams in the National League. And there would be 15 in both the Grapefruit and Cactus Leagues as well. But the reason why that works when you have an odd number is because they allow interleague play. But you can't exactly do interleague play now. So one thing that I'm thinking that they could do is have... There's been the talk about doing multiple doubleheaders. If there's a way to have double headers against different teams on the same day. That would be a logistical nightmare, but from a schedule balancing standpoint, they really might not have a choice because the whole point is to not give teams days off. It's to cram as many games as you can between July 1st or whatever the start date is and the end of the season, whenever that is. So you can't just say, oh, well, you know, the Rangers are just off today. No, they are playing today. It's just a matter of kind of fitting them in. Could you see a scenario when somebody's like the the Braves are going to wake up on a Wednesday morning and they play the the Twins in the morning and then they play the Cardinals at night? No, I actually I don't see that happening for a very specific reason. You're going to start talking about the injuries are really going to pile up if everybody's playing every single day and there's no off days in between. Honestly, I think they should still go with this proposal, but they should just run it as like a 90 game season. Really, just just take from after the All Star break and go. I don't. I don't think you have to get into this playing every day, playing doubleheaders all the time, because then you're going to talk about player safety. And yes, we all want baseball back, but it's also not right to the players to be like, all right, cool, well, uh, you guys are going to go full gladiator. You're not allowed to rest. Just get back up in there. The whole reason they're having to do this is an abundance of player safety. You know what I mean? So, Or just safety of humans in general. So you do bring up a good point about the injuries. You see, this is why we've got a player on the show. I could have never done this by myself. Listen, we're they just need to listen to you and me. We'll have this mapped out and finished. Well, build a build a biodome. We, we had Kylie on this week, so every everybody is sure everybody is sure to listen. And yeah. who are we kidding? Nobody's still listening after after Kylie dropped off. So we can say whatever we want. Nah, everybody listens to us all the time. But there is some cool things going on with some of these divisions. I mean, if you look at the cast, the Cactus League West. In the same division, you're going to have Mike Trout, Shohei Otani, Cody Bellinger, Mookie Betts, uh, Francisco Lindor, <laughs> Eloy Jimenez. It, it, there's going to be some really cool divisions and some really cool players that you don't always get to see in those, like get to see play each other. I I would be very excited to see Mike Trout versus Mookie Betts a consistent amount of times. That would be awesome. Or Cody Bellinger, so you can see how the NL MVP actually stacks up to the AL MVP. 
seeing so, the way that some of these rivalries would, would play out is kind of interesting. Like Oakland and San Francisco, who would both be in the Cactus League Northeast, they would have to do some work on the naming of these divisions because you've got like the Rangers. Oh, they hate each other. Well, you've got the, the Rangers in the Cactus League Northwest. And like, we already made fun of the uh, the Twins being in the being in the South. But like the A's and the Giants, they've they've got the territorial rivalry. You know, they're they're right across the bay from each other. But they're you know, Oakland's in the AL West and San Francisco's in the NL West. So now they would finally be in the same division. They would get to butt heads in that way. It's it's kind of a shame that the Phillies and the Orioles wouldn't be in the same division too for the exact same reason. Now the the talent discrepancy in both of those matchups is totally different. You know, the A's A's versus Giants clearly favors the A's and Phillies versus Orioles clearly favors the Phillies. But let's say that they've got 19 just to use the the traditional number that division rivals would have against each other. In 19 games, if you're the Orioles and you suck as bad as you know you're going to and you beat the Phillies 5 times, that's a moral victory right there because beating somebody you hate is a thoroughly underrated event. So I want to see more of that. And I wonder what lingering rivalries would stem out of this. Like if Braves fans would have a long-standing hatred for the Rays if the Rays win the division. There's no reason to ever hate the Tampa Rays. They're like the they're the least hateable team in all of baseball. But I wonder. This this it speaks to the proposal and how it's actually for as many things as we've heard about this as are just crap. This is a good one. The, all of the different different proposals that have come out, a lot of them have just been hogwash. But this one, this could really work. And once again, this is contingent upon if there is a baseball season. This is currently the leading idea. There's still entertaining ideas. They're trying to figure out the the best combination of variables to to make this work. But I could see something like this kind of working. And it restores, since there's no interleague play, it restores kind of that teams that meet in the World Series haven't seen each other all year. And wouldn't it be interesting if the if the Braves wind up facing anybody from the traditional National League in the World Series or something like that, like a Braves-Dodgers World Series? We, we were convinced last year that was going to be the, the championship series. In the National League, and then you fast forward one year, and that could be that could be the World Series, and then we just go back in 2021. We didn't talk about oh no, that never happened. No idea. Weird, weird things to consider. Well, one of the things that you can consider too is you were talking about the 15 teams in each league. If you do a 90 game season, which is half of a season, essentially the first half of every season of baseball tends to be 90, 91 games. You're talking about playing every team in your uh, in your league six times. So it does work out evenly. It does. It does, it does. Now, as for some of these divisions, I'm not happy about the Yankees and the Phillies getting a cakewalk of, of a division. You know, getting to face, like, the Cupcakes, you know, like the Blue Jays, the Tigers, and then the Pirates, who are probably going to be the worst team in baseball. Uh, but on the flip side, uh, Braves fans will be very happy to root against the Grapefruit League East which is the Nationals, the Astros, the Mets. Uh, who else am I forgetting in there? The Cardinals and the Marlins. That's going to be a stacked division. That's got the opportunity to be a really, really interesting division to watch. Provided nothing changes, I think that would be the one that I'm... That and- for the first time in my life, I would pull for the Mets. 
No, that's a bridge too far. I would just I would just bet a thousand dollars on the Marlins to win and just pull for them. I know that it would never happen, but I, I can't. Oh yeah, I'd probably do that. I wouldn't bet a thousand dollars because I don't have a thousand dollars to just piss away. <laughs> but I would definitely pull for the Marlins. Out of all of those teams, I would be most inclined to root for the Nationals, like with with an actual rooting interest. Like the Marlins, they're similar. We to... get it, Doc. We get it. You're a Nationals fan. Oh, I am not a Nationals fan. I just I didn't hate them as much as a lot of people did. But like, okay, so you've got the Marlins, who you know are going to finish last, and then that it's. Chip Carey always used the phrase, pick your poison. You know, you're looking at the Astros, dirty, rotten cheaters. Cardinals, I don't think I need to go there. Mets, I don't think I need to go there either. So now you're you're looking at Nationals versus Marlins. So I'm really just pulling for Max Scherzer and Juan Soto and for a team that could actually win the division, right? If they're not, if they're not in our division, then they essentially become... The Padres in the traditional traditional National League setup. I can't hate the Nationals because they're not a division rival anymore. Think about how funny it would be though for the Astros to get put out by the Nationals in like consecutive halves. <laughs> yeah, that this is like a just kind of a mean trick that they that they played. I feel like the the Astros belong in the Grapefruit League South, and you could switch them out for for either the Red Sox or the Orioles or, or something, but uh, somebody just wanted to see the Astros and the Nationals in the same division. Hey, I'd be fine with it. I, I, I really do like this proposal. And there's still three big league parks that could be used. Chase Field, Tropicana, which is a horrible stadium, but it's still a dome. And the new Miami Stadium is a dome now, too. So, really, you could use three big league ball fields in addition to the spring training facilities, in which case you can do your your primetime games in actual major league stadiums. And the Braves just opened Cool Today Park. You know, that that's one that I was thinking about earlier today, that they if they can rectify some of the lighting issues, because apparently the night games were super dim, but if they can clean these parks up and get everything ready, because it's not like you're having to customize it for fans, because this, this whole thing is... I, there, there will be no fans. I, I, I will gladly eat crow or eat a hat or, or whatever. But there will be no, no fans. That's going to be hard to pass. It, it, Eating a hat's going to be hard to pass. Well, it'll have to be a platinum sombrero, which means it's made of metal. So yeah, that will certainly be hard to pass. But and now I've totally lost what I was talking about because I was, I was convinced I needed to talk about eating a hat. So I'm going to kick it back to you, checkmate. Dylan. Pull us out of this. Checkmate. <laughs> oh man, but but so yeah, Florida's got got the abundance of different stadiums that you can use, right? So you could use Cool Today, or you could use any of the. Uh, there's a ton of minor league stadiums down there too. You're not having to prepare these stadiums for people. You just need it to be good enough to get by. This whole season is basically going to be a band aid. It's just a series of band aids, which is which is where you can allow something like this. And I've heard concerns about some of the Arizona parks not being as ready as they need to be because it's it's pretty rare for any of these spring training facilities to host night games, which is how <clears throat> this is how we learned about the Brave Stadium not being ready. They had a very very rare night game, and said it's, it's mega dim out here. They talked about it on the broadcast. I, this was during one of the radio games, but that's it's a new park. But it's it's new. It's largely untainted by human germs. So, 
I would count on that being one of the different places. And, and in Arizona, they there's col. I mean, there's that's another thing to entertain is that there there's colleges around too. There's Arizona, Arizona State. I don't know how big the radius is going to be in in uh, essence of caution, and you don't want the players to go too far off of home base because the whole containment is the entire idea here. So this is still just a proposal. And any of this could change or somebody could come out tomorrow in classical TPS fashion. We're recording this on Wednesday. So you know that on Thursday, a different proposal is going to come out. And we'll just talk about it next week. <laughs> Obviously, that's what we do. That's why we set it up the way that's we right. set it up. But I, I will say I do like this proposal. You guys can let us know whether you, you like it or not. But uh, I do want to bring back a segment that we did last week that I really did enjoy. And that is Busted Prospects. <laughs> I know Doc has been waiting all week to be able to say this name. We talked after the show last week and probably named off seven or eight different guys that could have made their spots known in that first week. But uh, I, I, this is cathartic for me because Doc and I were looking at the rosters from like two, the prospect rankings from like 2010 onward until like 2015. And it is a veritable wasteland. Doc, before the show, we were just running down first round picks. And I don't want to name the guys because they're going to feature prominently in these segments. Um, but suffice it to say, the Braves drafting in the first round was one of the worst things over a five-year stretch run that I've ever seen. It is a very good thing that the Braves got friend of the program, Brian Bridges, to lead them out of the rebuild. He was responsible for... Allard and Soroka and that that whole first draft after he showed up it was just night and day from what it had been like like you said we're not we're not going to run through the the 2010 through 2014 first round picks you can do that uh, on your own time if you're feeling particularly masochistic but uh, Brian really got in there and changed a lot of things and all of the losing it it did bring a lot of prospects our way so uh, one of the guys that I would like to to talk about this week is he was acquired. I'm pretty sure it was on New Year's Day, uh, and that was Manny Benuelos. He was part of that that off season between 15, 14 and fifteen, where the Braves traded Hayward and Gaddis and Upton, and that's when they got Tyrell Jenkins and Shelby Miller, who they eventually flipped. They got Max Freed, who you obviously know that we love here. But one of the under-the-radar deals that they did was when they traded David Carpenter and Chasen Shreve, who is still bouncing around out there, and they got Manny Banuelos, who had been just a mega prospect at one point. But he missed uh, most of 2012 and uh, all of 2013, I think, because he had Tommy John. And when the Braves got him, he was still kind of on the up and up, and he was supposed to step in and contribute pretty much immediately. And when I look back on that 2015 rotation, I remember Shelby Miller and Julio Tehran, Alex Wood was still in it. So that that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good top three right there. And then you had guys like Eric Stoltz, who I think he lasted like five weeks. I, who I, by the way, I could never tell you in a million years that Eric Stoltz was a member of the Braves. Like, 
I do not recognize the name. I do not know what he looks like. I could not tell you a single game he pitched. And and that's that's about. I mean, it, I think he honestly he was on the opening day roster, and then he legit lasted like five weeks. And then he and Alberto Cayaspo. Let's see if I can remember this trade off the top of my head. Alberto Cayaspo, Eric Stoltz, Juan Jaime, and Ian Thomas got traded to the Dodgers for Juan Uribe, who was one of the most beloved Braves in the short tenure. <laughs> Kelly Johnson flip. The, man, <laughs> I sometimes I still I feel like we should sign Kelly Johnson just so we can trade him, or at least if we, there wasn't a transaction freeze. But, so... It, can we sign him to the Platinum Sombrero? By the way, any of you out there that know Kelly Johnson, please get him in contact with the show. I would love to have Kelly Johnson on We the are going to trade him to the High and Inside podcast for a prospect to be named later. Uh, but so in the, in the 2015 team, they had a, a decent rotation at the top. And then Ben Walos, he was far enough along in his development where he was supposed to step in and he was going to make some noise, right? He was going to reclaim his, his prospect value that he had lost. And then he showed up and posted a 513 ERA, a 537 FIP. And he went 1-4. And uh, let's see, he struck out six and a half per nine to the tune of a negative 0.2 war. And he just, Ooh. yeah, he just, he couldn't stay healthy, could not stay healthy whatsoever. All of the prospect luster had kind of worn off. And then he wound up bouncing around to, uh, let's see, he made 14 starts in, in the minors in 2016 and rehab stuff. 2017, he went to the Angels because that's just what happens when you're a Braves prospect that doesn't make it. You wind up going to the Angels. Then he went to the Dodgers, He and he logged some meaningful time for the White Sox last year. He did. He got eight starts, 16 appearances, still posted an ERA and a FIP, both near seven, and he was worth negative uh, 0.4 F war. But uh, Manny Benuelos, congratulations. You are my busted prospect of the week. And Dylan, let's talk a little bit about yours. He was going to be a slightly more recognizable name to anybody who... Uh, yeah. uh. <laughs> Anybody that paid attention to the Braves in the immediate aftermath of when Brian McCann left us for the Yankees, you remember there was one catching prospect that was supposed to make it all worthwhile. And it wasn't Jared Saltz-Lamacchia, who was already dealt in the Mark Share trade, which will still go down as one of the worst trades ever, as the Braves gave up, and I'm not exaggerating, four All-Stars for a season and a half of a first baseman. Um, hmm. But that was supposed to be okay because we had the next superb Atlanta catcher. This was going to be our next Javi Lopez type. This is going to be our guy that's going to come up and he's going to be the next Brian McCann or slightly different version. That is, of course, Christian Betancourt. To anybody that was even remotely aware of any prospects at the time, they didn't talk about prospects very much. Yet you did know Christian Betancourt. And that's because the Braves had a concerted effort to make sure people knew this guy because he was going to be it. He was never considered a hitter. That was always kind of the thing with him coming out was, well, as long as he makes enough contact, it'll be fine. He hits the ball hard. He just doesn't have power, blah, 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 blah. It was all about the defense. Reports of this, you have to see this guy's arm to believe it. It's the greatest arm since Pudge Rodriguez. Nobody's ever going to be able to steal a base. The defense is off the charts. Nothing's ever going to get past him. This is going to be a superb catcher of the future, franchise-type catcher, blah, blah, blah. Well... As all of you can quickly figure out, since Christian Bethencourt is no longer with the Atlanta Braves, um, and as a matter of fact, did not spend a lot of time with the Braves at all, that did not pan out. Not only could he not hit, which they were correct in that it would take a while for him to hit, they just were incorrect in that they implied that there would be a time that he could learn how to hit. Um, 
Not only could he not hit or run, uh, he could not catch the ball. Was horrible defensively, and not even just stopping it, like dropping and blocking, which is pretty nuanced. It sounds easy, and we all think it's easy. It's really not, but not even good at that. He could not actually catch with his glove. And then when you finally got a chance to see the arm, you're like, oh, just wait till he gets to throw somebody out, though. That'll be where it all shines. And then he couldn't do that. Horrible arm, super inaccurate, couldn't even throw back to the pitcher half the time. Got to the point where he's bounced around probably three or four different teams. The fact that the San Diego Padres moved him to a relief pitcher role where he failed at that, but at least he could throw 95 to where I think he's trying to make yet another comeback. True story. Actually, I'm going to tell three, three two, true stories. First one, when I was doing game coverage for one of the spring training games back when baseball was supposed to happen, Christian Bethencourt hit two home runs in a minor league, or excuse me, in a spring training game against the Braves uh, when the Phillies were coming back uh, against, against, I cannot remember exactly what date it was, but I do know the Braves had a decent lead, and because of Christian Bethencourt, and also because of Shane Green, then the Braves wound up losing that game. So he has transitioned out of the relief pitcher role and back into catching. Second true story, this is the second week in a row We've only done this two weeks, but this is the second week in a row that your busted prospect included somebody that had to convert to pitching. So next week, you you either, I think you have to find another one just by default. Third true story I'm going to tell is I completely nailed that trade from memory, the Juan Uribe deal, except for the fact that Chris Withrow came to Atlanta with Uribe in that deal. And Withrow's brother, Matt, still in the brave system. I remember Withrow was was the key piece of that trade. I mean, Uribe stepped in, but uh, there there was not a whole lot happening. At- nobody was expecting your nobody was expecting Uribe to be anything good. By the way, for Christian Bethencourt, just a little note for all of you: um, he has never had a positive WAR season. Really, his best season was his most valuable season was 2013, where he played one game with the Braves had one plate appearance, struck out, and finished the season at 0.0 war. Negative 0.0 war. But that was his most valuable season. Well, that's not good. No wonder. <laughs> no wonder you nominated him for your busted prospect. I think, I think that qualifies as a bust, right? Here, I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna keep telling true stories, okay? Juan Uribe, Kelly Johnson, flipped to the Mets in July of 2015 in a deal that got... Rob Whalen and John Gant. John Gant got traded to the Cardinals in the Jaime Garcia deal with Luke Dykstra and Chris Ellis. Who brought us Wasker Noah? Brought us Wasker Noah. So that is signing Alberto Cayaspo wound up the branches off of that trade. Unbelievable. Could have never seen that coming five years ago, could you? I keep hijacking <laughs> it. I want to talk about my, my prospect bust. Actually, it's like I'm saying that Alberto Caspo is my pro- is my prospect bust. We've got to be done. I'm loopy. I'm I'm just throwing stuff at the wall. Well, there you go for for the end of the show. Manny Banuelos and Christian Bethencourt. Don't worry, we will be featuring some more next week. Some very prominent draft picks that I'm going to feature with next week that I guarantee 90% of y'all never heard of. And prospect guys who did hear of him, know this is one of the biggest draft busts the Braves have had in a long, long time. But for now, we're going to go ahead and call it a wrap for this week. Thank you guys so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Kylie. 
Y'all stay safe out there. Whenever we find out about when baseball is back, you can be you can rest assured we will find a way to get it to y'all. Thank y'all so much for continuing to support the Platinum Sombrero, and we'll catch you next week right here on the Platinum Sombrero.